Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Sarcast, the podcast for the search and rescue community. My name is Richard Prido, previously a member of a UK Mountain SAR team, and now someone who trains outdoor professionals both here in the UK and overseas. This is a slightly different episode to what you may have previously heard on Sarcast. We're trying new things and diving a little deeper into the world of search and rescue by speaking with people all over the globe. If you or your organisation are interested in being a guest, please get in touch with our producer Amy via the contact methods in the show notes for this episode. Our guest this month is Ralph Simonsen. He is a member of the Midtroms team of Norwegian People's Aid with over 11 years of SAR experience. Ralph is 42 and a summer, winter, avalanche and swift water SAR operator, as well as a search manager and swift water rescue instructor. He is also a drone pilot, instructor and operational manager for the drone operations of the team and was previously a captain in the Norwegian Civil Defence. Ralph is a great guy to talk with, and the work the teams are doing up there with SAR drones is fascinating. We bounce around between topics a little, but I really enjoyed recording this, and it could have gone on for a lot longer. Hey Ralph, how's it going? Fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. How's life up there in the frozen north? Uh, today is really, really frozen. We have uh, 17, 80 degrees below zero outside and I'm sitting tucked in under a pile of blankets and managing more wood inside the stove for my wife so she will be happy. So do you, as the co- temperatures get colder, do you just get closer to the stove? Uh, we either get closer to the stove or we uh, get more close on on us or put put ourselves inside blankets (laughs) (laughs) so in the intro there i said a little bit about you and where you are but can you um give the listeners uh, an idea of where you are in the world and where you are why way where you are is slightly different maybe to um other places in europe or north america or wherever yeah to do the the quick introduction, uh, I'm above the Arctic Circle, so we're starting to get really close to the North Pole. And um, the biggest island, uh, no, sorry, second biggest island in Norway is called Senja. And that's the backyard of my playing ground. So <laughs> I'm I'm in the middle of, of Trumps. So for 
anyone listening and in all the the cartography types and the map types you are at oh, just above 69 degrees latitude yeah 69.3 so to put that in context that is the same as most of the north coast of alaska um it's above it's further north than the bering straits um it takes you above most of Russia and Siberia as well, by the looks of it. Yeah, most parts. Uh, I still have uh, 1,000 kilometers to the northern po- point of Norway. And <laughs> then we are above the Russians. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we maybe shouldn't mention the proximity to the Russians. There has been a few um, problems over the years on that Russian border, hasn't there? Um. In the Cold War, tensions were quite high uh, in the Russian border, but uh, in the later years, it's been a really good uh, development and yeah, and good neighbors between Norwegian and Russian um, civilian people. They they visit each other quite a lot in uh, the northern part, uh, Finnmark, that's the northern municipality. How easy is it to cross the border there? Can you just drive back and forth, or do you have to... What's what's the process? Uh, you need a visa. Uh, mm-hmm. And as I understood, there uh, there is uh, a local visa for the inhabitants closest to the border that uh, they can drive uh, into Russia. But of course, uh, between Russia and when you get to civilization, there's a quite big military zone. And inside this zone, when you cross the border, it's not allowed to stop. So if your car breaks down for any reasons, you will quite soon have a <laughs> visit from the Russian military. <laughs> but it's it's actually quite easy. But if you don't have a visa, then you're being winked away and good luck next year. And is there is there a lot of... When you get to the border and you're not on a road, is there a kind of a... Is there a line in the forest or is there a just sort of forest and then more forest. You don't know where you are. Uh, Most of our borders is uh, only uh, forest, and suddenly you can be in in Finland or in Sweden. But uh, the Russian border, we know exactly where it is, and and they know exactly where it is. So uh, it's not so easy to cross it. But there has been a a lot of mishaps. I've heard this from um, other countries. Sort of more wilder countries are where there's more wilderness area where sort of hunters are, have managed to cross the border and and only found out afterwards. Yeah, um, to cross uh, a border between Sweden or uh, Finland with a weapon is not a big issue, but uh, crossing the Russian border could be seen upon as a war declaration. So we don't do that. <laughs> so. Where you are then, and sort of the region, and we're not going to give away you know, the location of your house, but we know roughly where you are there. Um, I'm just looking on Google Maps now. It's surprisingly built up. There's a, there's a lot of houses and things around. There are towns and small villages out there all along the roads. There are more people there than I expected there to be. Yeah, in my region, there's approximately 30,000 people living. and the the biggest city is uh, Tromsø. It's actually Norway's fifth largest city, 
50,000 inhabitants inside the city and 80,000 inside the region of Tromsø. So hmm. Tromsø is quite a large city. It's uh, 160 kilometers north of us. So that's a small drive. That's the drive we we drive to Tromsø to do some shopping and drive back again. That's a normal distance for us. So you're you're practically in a suburb then. Yeah, pra- <laughs> practically in a suburb to Fins- to uh, Tromsø. Uh, my town is uh, Finsnes. I can give mm. a, give away that much. Okay. So what do people do for a living in Finsnes? What what's the work? What's the uh, the where's the income from? Um we have a lot of income from uh, from fish actually. Uh, mm. the fish industry on um on the island of Senja produces approximately 1.4 billion euro each year. Wow. So um a, a lot of working is um, inside fishing or contributing to fishing to uh, supporting building building homes for for uh, factory workers, fishermen, and and of course uh, natural uh, service elements as shops and yeah, uh, public service, yeah, so on. Basically, we do the same here as anywhere else, but fish is uh, a really big. Thing here. Now, I suppose because when you look at the maps, you can just see j- just how much coastline you have. Um, what's there's the, there's a joke somewhere um, about the length of Norwe- <laughs> the Norwegian coastline. It's longer than anywhere else in any other country on Earth, or something. By the time you straighten out and get all those wiggles, all those fjords and wobbly bits. Yeah, we have uh, extensive uh, coastline. I think the coastline we have uh, around Senja is a little bit over 4,000 kilometers. <laughs> so uh, it, it's quite long. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I'm on some other podcasts, I always have to trans- translate my metric European measurements into Freedom Eagle units. Um, but I think we're going to let them do it themselves for this time because the rest of the world uses metric. And I think there's, is it Liberia and the USA use, uh, use Imperial. So we're going to stay in kilometers. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, when we speak in a metric system, uh, normally we're being stamped as uh, obnoxious, but I can live with that. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. Everything divides by 10. Why, why would you do anything else? Yeah. Quite easy. Yeah. yeah. So. Again, I'm looking at the maps and looking at the aerial view here. Um, it looks a lot like the west coast of Scotland in some ways. You've got these uh, these forests rising out of the fairly blue, clear water there, running up to some. The mountains look quite bald. You know, they, they seem to get above the tree line quite quickly, um, despite the altitude. Yeah, um, in my backyard we have a big mountain called. Uh... Kistefjell, um, Cast Mountain, I think, is a good way to translate it. It's 1,100 meters high. Mm. And in a straight line from uh, the coastline and to the top of this mountain is uh, not more than one and a half kilometers. So it goes almost straight up, 40 mm. degrees straight up from from the shoreline and to the top. Yeah, so... 
it's a bit like over here, isn't that the mountains aren't particularly high, but you can do a thousand meters, fifteen hundred meters of ascent quite quickly in starting at sea level. Yeah, um, this mountain we have a big uh, television uh, cast uh, on this Kistefjell, and mm. it's uh, part of the national transponder network of uh, television and radio signals and it's uh, it's a usual um, site for normal people to walk to it takes approximately four hours to walk up and down on this mountain if you're not trained and trained people do it in under two hours up and down hmm. but there's not a lot of um infrastructure it looks like between in that two hours up and down uh no you can find one uh <laughs> one power line going up to the television <laughs> mouse and that's it <laughs> so if you follow the power line if you follow it downhill eventually it'll take you back to some civilization yeah if you go downwards you get to a coastline no matter where you are <laughs> <laughs> yeah but there's four thousand kilometers just on the island let alone the mainland <laughs> yeah w- w- when you when you hit the water some somehow you have to find someone well, you have to decide if you're turning left or right, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> typical decision point. Yeah. So you are a member of, um, well, it's translated as Norwegian People's Aid, uh, or as, so I'm going to try and pronounce this, uh, Norsk Folkhjelp? Folkhjelp? That was quite close. Norsk Folkhjelp. <laughs> So that is so it's Norwegian's People's Aid. Now looking through the website here, it looks like it's it's a, it's a strange thing. It's like it's like a government sponsored Red Cross almost. Um, both us and Red Cross, we're uh, NGOs, non-government organizations. Uh, but oh, okay. But we're um, we have a lot of income from um, from the government in Norway. Uh, with the search and rescue side of it, and of course the uh, the human side of it, we uh, do a lot of politics work, and the uh, Norwegian People Aid uh, is uh, one of the largest mind sweeping organizations throughout the world. Hmm. It's the only time I have been on a search and rescue organization or an organization that covers search and rescue. I've been on their homepage and noticed at the top there is a whistleblower link. This, this is, it's an organization that I recognize as a quite a European and quite a Nordic uh, thing and way of thinking about things. But from you know, work I've done and just my own experiences, but I wonder whether the organization for this and the structure of it might be a little bit not alien but unfamiliar to other areas of the world and sort of the mindset of the organization. I'm not saying you're weird. I'm just saying Norwegians might be different. Oh, we know we are weird, but we are used to it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, both my organization, Norwegian People Aid, and uh, the Norwegian organization of Red Cross is quite similar with mm. the search and rescue stuff and the humanitarian side, and this with uh, providing service to uh, the less fortunate uh, in our society. So. It's a typical northern way of thinking. I think you see 
the same thing in Sweden, Denmark, and Finland and uh, Iceland. It's uh, it's uh, a Nordic culture. Hmm. And it's when the few times I have visited Norway and I've done a tiny bit of work over there. I was looking around thinking these people are made of something different to me. These people are made of maybe something slightly stronger, if not a lot stronger and a lot more resilient. I think it was, um, there was, we were working um, near Finsa on the Hardangavida Plateau and we were getting back onto the train to go back out to a city somewhere to get a flight home. And I think it was either some public holiday or something in the spring um, where there seemed to be lots of families arriving to go off and stay in their winter holiday home hut thing. And you were watching these eight-year-old kids get off the train with 25-kilo rucksacks, and they were just strapping them on and then skiing off into the distance following their parents. Um, and uh, Yeah, you guys are tough. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we have a Norwegian saying that we're born with skis on our feet, and it's it's close to the truth. <laughs> so, uh, if we're not born with it, we at least get uh, skis very very early. Um, mm. I have three kids of my own. I think uh, each of them had the first pair of skis uh, within their first living year. <laughs> So it's you. You learn to learn to maybe crawl, then ski, then walk, maybe. Approximately like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and of course, you have to be quite special and a little bit uh, screwed inside your head to manage to live in this part of the world <laughs> where we have uh, six, seven months of winter and uh, three months of total darkness. I was going to say so. Is this is is the uh, equinox in a month's time? Is that when you're going to see the sun? Maybe next. Is that when you start to see it, or is it later than that? Uh, we're quite uh, lucky. We have seen the sun now for almost uh, two and a half weeks, so we're we're in a good mood, and we're uh, for almost forgotten everything, uh, every snow that's fallen the last three three months. So we're happy that we only have a little bit over a meter of snow. Right. So in, so in noon, you get a little bit of sun just over the horizon on that first day, and then it gets better every day after that, then? Yeah. No, at this time, the uh, the daylight is uh, 15 minutes longer each day. We have six, seven minutes extra in each end of the day. So right now, late February, we uh, have... Uh, uh, I'm guessing we have uh, eight, nine hours of daylight. Okay, that's not too bad then. That's that's getting good. So t- two and two months more, and then we don't have any darkness. Then we have the midnight sun. <sighs> I I I think we, here in the UK we were quite far north, and when I talk to friends in America, um, so you know, realize how far south they are. But yeah, you're on another level. So you live. On the live on the mainland near a, a huge island or huge on it looks pretty big on the map. There are forests around. There are relatively low but quite bare and rocky mountains. And I'm guessing there's snow on the ground now or some snow. Yeah, yeah. In the mountains we get snow um, 
late September, early October, and in the lowlands we get the snow in November, and then we have the snow in the lowlands until May. And mm. in the mountains the snow clears in late May, June, maybe July, until it clears. So that's that's a significant feature then throughout the year and in the in the sort of the outdoor world there. Yeah, we we're in the epicenter of uh, avalanche accidents in Norway, and hmm. the avalanche season starts approximately in November and ends in June. The latest call out I know we've had was early July, but then we're uh, at a thousand meters height, so. But it happens. Who's being avalanched? Hikers, skiers, uh, snow snowmobilers. Who, who, who are the victims? Though? The typical vi- victims of avalanches in our uh, area is uh, skiers, alpine skiers. Hmm. So it's very popular to um, to to travel to the top of the mountains and and ski them down. And since most of our uh, uh, Mountains are above 30 degrees. Uh, every slope has an avalanche risk of some kind. And being on the coast there as well, I'm guessing you wind makes a, uh, a significant impact on that. Uh, with the mainland and uh, with the big, uh, big fields of uh, Sweden and Finland that's not so rocky as in Norway, mm. uh, snow are being transported. And when it hits the mountains it's uh building up on on the other side of the mountains of the wind so yeah. it's very typical that we uh have a lot of snow and the norwegian word of uh of this phenomenon when when the bill when the snow builds up we call it uh fuck f-o-k-k i'm gonna use that word yeah in many contexts in many ways that is added to my uh vocabulary now Fuck. 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 Fuck snow. Fuck snow. Yeah. I, I, I have said that several times. Um, the last time I think I said that really in earnest was when we got, um, when Spindrift filled the entrance to the snow hole. Um, yeah. That, uh, I, I, I was describing that as fuck snow. I don't think I was using it correctly, though. Um, <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, a, a slight different way of pronouncing it, but uh, the same meaning. <laughs> <laughs> so, people, we are still trying to be a search and rescue podcast. So, Norwegian People's Aid. Folkjop? 
Och hjälp. Och hjälp. Och hjälp. Hjälp. Okej. Det är inte att det efter den här podcasten, men jag vill få det här. If I am, if I'm climbing to the top of this mountain above you, uh, uh, what's the name again? I'm bringing it up here. Uh, Kistifel? Kistifjell? Yeah, that's correct. Kistifjell. So I, I am going out there um, half an hour before sunset and I decide I can get up to the top and back again in two hours. And I get up to three quarters of the way up to the top and I slip and do something stupid and break my ankle. What's the process next there? So, do you is it one one two that you ring for Europe? Yeah, in in Norway because we're slightly different as we mentioned. So we have three emergency numbers in Norway. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> because having one is too easy. So so we have one one zero for fire services, and we have one one two for police, and one one three for medical assistance. So which one do I call? Uh, no matter which one you call, you get help. But the fun fact is that uh, in in Norway, <laughs> if you call one one two, nine one one, or nine nine nine, they all lead you to the police. So over here in the UK, it's the police that have responsibility for search and rescue on land, and they are the calling agency. They are the ones that call out mountain rescue teams and search and rescue teams on land uh, away from the coast. So is that the same over there? Yeah, we have uh, almost the same uh, here. We, uh, it's um, it's the local police that uh, do the call outs and and uh, provides missions to uh, search and rescue teams. Uh, we have seven organizations in Norway that are uh, pre-qualified for doing search and rescue with uh, Norwegian People Aid and Red Cross as being uh, the two largest with with people and we also have uh, canine units with Norwegian rescue dogs and we have uh, this uh, cave guys and this uh, cave divers hey. and we have hey. uh, Norwegian radio and relay league so we have radio amateurs also when when mm. you uh, the first time I uh, when I heard about these guys I thought What do we need them for in search and rescue? And then I checked the map and I saw, okay, we have 1,000 meters up of mountains on this side, 1,000 meters of mountains up on the <laughs> other side, and we have no cell towers. Hmm, yeah, <laughs> these radio guys, they are really good. We we like yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> and so would Norwegian People's Aid be called to um, an incident on that mountain? Kind of very, Would they be the agency called? Yeah, in in our re region, we have um, our team and we have uh, a couple of Red Cross teams. So um, usually one of the organization get the call out or we get the call out with a joint operation. Mm -hmm. So, um, but uh, a typical, uh, when you're going to, uh, to Kistifjell, you have a cell phone coverage all the way. So it's possible to call for help. We have a large area, national parks, uh, closer to the Swedish and Finnish border where we don't have any cell phone coverage. And there we have this, uh, yeah, we call it mountain rules when, where you, where you make appointment that I go on a trip this Friday and I will be back Sunday at six o'clock. Mm -hmm. So when Sunday six o'clock comes and you haven't returned, 
then people are getting starting and checking out, okay, why haven't they come? And maybe seven o'clock they call the police and depending on weather and weather conditions and time of year, the police call out the uh, search agencies like uh, us or or Red Cross uh, within the hour, half an hour, hour. Um, but before the police can start the search and rescue operation, they have to uh, make contact with um, with the National Star headquarters. And we have uh, one in Buda that are the, um, we call it uh, HRS, uh main rescue central. We have one mm-hmm. in the north and one in the south, one in Buda and one in Stavanger. And they are uh, managing, uh, giving okay for call-outs to the police, and then the police are starting call-outs. But they are having the main responsibility of uh, how much resources to uh, to use. And if the case is big enough, it's almost endless how much resources you can use in a search and rescue. You say you, you can, they, they, that main rescue centre, or the, what, the one in the north or the south, can decide how many resources go to a job. Who remains in overall command then? If you have multiple agencies or multiple teams going to one job, who is on? Who is in command on the ground? Who is in command on the other end of the radio? Um, we're divided in uh, in two. Everything on land is um, police is having the uh, highest authority of planning and leading the the incident. And on the sea, mm-hmm. it's always the coast guard that has uh, that has the unseen command and incident command. And within your team. Do you do you subdivide within your team to have um, party leaders or team leaders or how does it work within? Is this is it Mitroms? Is Mitroms is your team? Yeah, Mitroms is my team, and inside my team we have uh, uh, six search managers, certified search mm-hmm. managers, and I think we have ten or eleven team leaders, and. Mm-hmm. A total of uh, thirty-one SAR uh, operators. So, um, since we're volunteering, we our plan is to always have enough of leadership. So, uh, no matter when things happen, we will be really, really unlucky not to have any kind of leadership uh, on on callouts. And and this is uh, a plan that we've had because. Since we're a volunteer and we have to do these crazy things like going to work and sometimes travel abroad to see the sun, so we <laughs> so we have a lot of leaders and typical we have uh, more leaders than we <laughs> than we actually have use for. So uh, <laughs> it's it's either pre-planned or it's rock paper paper scissor on who's in command. Okay. And do you have a central base? Do you have one a headquarters for the team, or do you sort of spread everything out? Uh, we have one headquarter in uh, Finsnes, where we have mm. uh, two rescue cars and one uh, ambulance, and two, three snowmobiles and one all-terrain vehicle. And everything is being inside and being kept uh, free from snow and warm and cozy. 
And you said snowmobiles there. In a previous conversation, you said something which seemed quite surprising to me. Um, what is the law with snowmobiles in Norway? Uh, the law in the basic law of snowmobiles in Norway is quite funny because, uh, uh, in general, it's not allowed to drive snowmobiles in Norway because of the risk of the injuries on the ground underneath the snow. Damaging, damaging plants and the, the, the ground underneath the snow. Yeah, correct. <laughs> not injuries to people, not damage to, to infrastructure or cars or anything like that. It's in case you damage moss. Yeah, basically, in case you damage moss. And all of the Canadians have just fallen off their seats laughing. Um, it, <laughs> the most fun part about this that... Um, it's not allowed to drive a snowmobile because of the risk of damaging the plant life and the moss. But it's okay to drive a, a tractor or an all-terrain vehicle. <laughs> because they are known for being much lighter than a snowmobile with a small engine. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> and they are known to uh, not putting so much damage on the ground with their, uh, <laughs> with their rubber wheels. <laughs> yeah, the really narrow rubber wheels on a tractor on a... Five ton machine, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you you have snowmobiles. Um, there are going to be some gear uh, nerds listening to this who want to know exactly which brand of vehicles you have and uh, a little bit about the setup of that. So could you could you talk about the hardware? Yeah, I can talk about the hardware, and I can start with uh, disappointing almost everyone that uh, my interest of snowmobiles is. I like that they start. If they start, I'm very happy. That's like me with radios, yeah. Yeah, um, but but we have um, one Lynx Rangehead. Uh, mm. That's uh, new of the year. We just got it a few days ago, and this is described that it's a perfect machine. It's not best on anything, uh, which means it's it's good on 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 everything, but not best on anything. It's it's good uh, dragging sleighs with people in it. It's good to drive in uh, in hard uh, terrain, and it's good to drive in soft terrain with a lot of snow. But it's not the best machine for anything. <laughs> it's sort of it's sort of a a, a, a metal compromise. Yeah, it's a all-purpose machine, and that's why we bought it because we need a machine that can cover everything. Because we have. Uh, in the lowland, we have uh, heavy coastal snow, and when we go to the mountains, we have light powder snow. Not mm. unusual to have. Uh, yeah, if we hop off the snowmobile, then our feet are gone in in the snow. <laughs> yeah, that sort of that wonderful bottomless, freshly laid powder, where the moment you fall over, you feel like you're drowning. Yeah, uh, the one that every skier loves. Yeah, they they love it. Yeah, they yeah. they they can't get enough of it. Um, and you said you had rescue cars. So are they all terrain vehicles? Are they SUVs? Are they, or is it something it, else? It's actually uh, two Volkswagen transporters, four by four, and one with so uh, yeah, it's vans. It's vans. Yeah. yeah, they are small small vans. So that's they are kind of the camper van of choice of retired fifty year old people across Europe. Yeah, pretty much. And the reason why we buy these cars is because they are they are four by four, and they are a little bit higher with clearing 
through the ground, so we can. It's no no problem to drive in twenty, thirty centimeters of snow on the roads. And believe it or not, that's not unusual. <laughs> so over here, everyone is buying, or the teams were all buying Land Rover Defender one tens, and then getting suspension lifts and huge all-terrain tires and BF Goodrich. <laughs> tires yeah. on them and all these things and you've got Volkswagen transporters. Yeah. Basically we uh we don't see the purpose of driving our uh, cars into the terrain because we have vehicles for that. We have snowmobiles and we have all terrain vehicles that are good for this shit. So uh I I think it's better to use uh, equipment that are uh, good at their original thing. So the rescue cars uh, get us quickly to the incident scene, and then we have the next uh, equipment to take us out to the patient. In terms of your equipment that you, your personal equipment, is it owned by you? Is it owned by the organization? Do you have things issued to you, or do you have to go and buy it yourself? Uh, we do both of them. Like, uh, for quoting Winnie to Boo, yes, please, both. So, um, <laughs> so for the equipment and the uniform we wear, we bear we wear the uniform of a Norwegian people, aid, but we buy this as individuals, and right. um, and we buy this from Heli Hansen. So we have uh, Heli Hansen lifesaver equipment, and um, hmm. our own brand for Norwegian people, aid. So the clothes we are wearing, it's not available for commercial sale, and that's kind of cool because. Heli Hansen has built the uniform for our specifications, and they have made civilian models of it, but um, not with our colors. So if you see one of those jackets, you know it's one of your guys. Yeah, then we know it's one of our guys. And we have a, a plan of, of how we uh, put on uh, uh, reflective materials and where we put our logo, so it's supposed to be easy to... Uh, to it- identify us from a helicopter or a drone or or uh, with a flashlight far far away and that brings us to the sort of the the perennial question for sar everyone's got their own opinion about which is the best color to wear which have you gone for we have gone for uh black and orange okay so the, i'm guessing the orange is 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 the high vis part of that the black maybe <laughs> although on the snow maybe uh the black is basically because it's uh doesn't you doesn't see when it gets dirty. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so because some countries swear by red, some countries have gone for blue and a mixture of blue and yellow. And I've seen all sorts of studies and claims about oh yeah, but on a glacier with twenty meters of visibility in this light, then blue is the best color. And yes, it, it all they all seem to work to me to my yeah. mind. Um. I'm a quite a bit of nerd on many things, and search and rescue is is one of them. and And I'm also following uh, some fire guys, and there are strong mm. opinions on which color a a fire truck should have, uh, if it should mm. be red or if it should be yellow, because we use both colors in Norway. And uh, to quote my uh, my local fire chief, he says, "It doesn't matter which." Uh, which color the car is, as long as it's red and it's big, everyone moves. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when you have a fire truck, it's 
big, it's noisy, a lot of flashing lights, everyone moves. It doesn't matter the color. But when you get to the smaller cars, yeah, it's the, you see the police and the ambulances in Norway, they uh, use uh, high reflective and high visibility with with yellow uh, cars and yellow yeah. color. And you see this quite good in daylight. And turning out in daylight sunlight, that's the worst thing we do because uh, that's when we get the least help of uh, of our blue lights when we uh, were on call out. So the highest risk for accidents is uh, in sunlight. Interesting. So for half of the year, you're fine. Uh, half of the year, we get a lot of help if it's not snowing uh, <laughs> cats and dogs and moron, <laughs> which it does a third of the year. So, <laughs> <laughs> so are there any particular items or brands within your rucksack, or uh, that you that you have for your personal gear that you really like, or that are particularly associated with your organization or your role? Um, um, a minimum requirement we have for all our team members is uh, that they, uh, in their rucksack, they need to have clothes and uh, food for uh, surviving 24 hours outside. Mm-hmm. And um, they need to take care of a patient. They need first aid kit for themselves and for a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, you doesn't need much, but you need to have some with you. And uh, then you need uh, the typical technical uh, stuff like uh, GPS, compasses, uh, a lot of batteries. To uh, Because as we mentioned, part of the year we have no light sources except uh, the headlights and flashlights that we bring. And when you're out searching for a lot of hours, then you really use batteries. Yeah, and cold weather as well with those batteries. Yeah, it's not ideal with the cold weather and batteries. Yeah. So which brand of uh, head torches and lighting do you use? I mean, we're not trying to get sponsorship. It's just people seem to always ask these <laughs> questions, so I'm asking them for them. Yeah. Uh, my favorite has been for um, a few years has been uh, uh, Leadlancer with uh, with the H7 and H14. I have mm-hmm. three h 7 and one H14 headlights, and I have uh, one L14, no, one P14 uh, hand torch. Yeah. And I like this because they doesn't eat the batteries. They consume qu- uh, batteries quite quickly, but uh, it doesn't eat batteries. So mm-hmm. I can actually do uh, some searching before I have to replace the batteries. And is it the H14? I think you could get an extra cable so you could take the battery pack off the back of your head and put it on your belt or in your jacket or something to keep it warm. Yeah. H14 has that one. And uh, yeah. um, and this uh, but H14, that's the one I've used most for searches in, uh, in total darkness. And I can search for approximately four and a half, five hours before replacing the batteries and i think that's quite good that's pretty good so we've got some of the vehicles and things there we've got some of the the other uh, your personal equipment um something we we said before we recorded we i really wanted to ask you questions about is something that is neither a vehicle that you travel in nor something that you carry in your rucksack but it's i've just i'm looking through the instagram post now for your team it looks so cool so can you tell us about 
the drone. Tell the listeners about the drone you have. Or drones. <laughs> the drones. Um, <laughs> we started quite early. Uh, in 2013, we started with, uh, with drones in Norskolke uh, uh, and And this was uh, due to an avalanche in Trumdal in Senja that killed three snowmobilers. Um, that was when we uh, started this idea with using drone in SAR because the avalanche risk was insane in this area. So there were, I think it from the accident started, we had uh, avalanche workers inside uh, one and a half, maybe two hours, and then we pulled them out because of of the risk of new avalanches. And we waited almost two weeks before we could start the job of um, recovering the bodies. And hmm. and we... Um, it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. We started thinking and we felt that this was actually a, quite a big problem that. We didn't have anything to to uh, send into the valley to check. Are there? Uh, is it possible to to save lives here? Is there anyone here? Can we find something? Can we do anything? So fly in with a camera, with a thermal sensor or a, a avalanche beacon. So that's when where the basically the ID started. Um, at this time, I was the captain in the civil defense and cooperating with. Uh, Norwegian people aid um, in in this avalanche particular. So this was one of the first time I got to know the this organization from, but from the other side and and then uh, during from the time to two thousand and fourteen to two thousand and nineteen, uh, the team had uh, drones with a flying capability of twenty twenty five minutes with. With a thermal and optical camera, um, actually, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, safe now to acknowledge that we uh, we hacked the video signal of a handheld clear thermal camera and <laughs> and sent it to a, a ground control station because this was not available equipment in two thousand and fourteen two thousand and fifteen. So we have we had a lot of geeks and nerds inside our organization that likes to find out stuff i'm I'm, I'm guessing that that has probably voided the warranty on that floor uh that was uh a known hazard that uh we (laughs) we didn't get any warranty actually to um when we uh when we hacked out the video signal and to send it on uh radio transmitting we actually had to uh to build a new casing using a 3D printer. Hmm. So uh, everything is possible if you just have uh, the imagination. Yeah, sometimes this is the um, the beauty of volunteer organizations. You can sidestep bureaucracy and just do what you need to do to get the job done. Yeah. And 
I can fast forward to 2019. We have a big avalanche in uh, Tamukdal um, called Blåbär Fjelle, Blueberry Mountain. Mm. So you can try pronouncing that Blåbär Fjelle. Blåbär Fjelle. Ah, you're quite good, Rich. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I, I can speak a little bit of Welsh, so... <laughs> Trying to trying to bounce vowels around, um, you know, doing trio shout out to um, bouncing vowels around in strange ways is is getting easier year after year. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's although your your people's language is all over the UK, I mean, particularly the northwest of England and Cumbria and places like that. Um, all the mountains there are called fells. Yeah. Yeah, so if you, you if you go for a walk in the mountains in in Cumbria or somewhere like that, you're going for a walk in the fells. So that's uh, that's your people from uh, about a thousand years ago, <laughs> or yeah. a bit more. When the Vikings uh, took their little uh, shopping sprees to England, yes, it's sort of involuntary shopping. I think it was the uh, <laughs> you yeah. were giving up your goods whether you you wanted to or not. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, back to topic. Oh yeah, drones, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, for this avalanche in uh, Tamukdal, um, it killed uh, three Swedish people and one Finnish people. Um, mm. uh, they were... They caused the avalanche approximately 970 meters above the ground and they were transported down to 570 meters above ground. Ooh, that's a long way. Covered in ten thousand cubic meters of snow, Oof. and one truck, um, one fairly big truck can, yeah, eight nine cubic meters of snow. So it was quite a lot of snow, and and uh, this was also um, quite uh, a harsh uh, mountain with forty forty five degrees angle and. Mm-hmm. The snowing was intense and crazy. So, for the search and rescue part, uh, our teams call, turned out and and waited and waited and waited for a clearing from the snow. And when it stopped snowing after four or five hours, we managed to get a small trip up with uh, with the seeking and mm-hmm. check out the. Uh, uh, this avalanche type but wasn't able to put anyone on the ground because it was not safe enough. So this was also a call-up where we had to wait two, two, two and a half weeks before we could start uh, with recovering the bodies. And um, uh, we recovered three of the four bodies from this mountain uh, that winter. and. the last body was recovered in June the same year. The avalanche mm. was the cost 2nd of January and I think the last body was recovered uh, yeah, mid-June. That's a long time. Yeah. And um, we know that one of the bodies was buried under more than 5 meters of snow. So was that literally just a case of waiting for melt? Yeah. Or was, um, there, or was there constant excavation? Was there excavation going on? There was excavation going on. We excavated uh, the three first, and mm-hmm. the last victim was excavated in uh, June. 
was that excavated as a result of a methodical search, or was that was there other factors that led you to led the, there to be an excavation in that place at that depth? Um, it you was, don't have to answer if you. Uh, it was a combination of uh, of yeah, I think I can call it hunch and um, and due diligence where mm-hmm. of where the other victims were found because. There was five people going on a ski, and one guy uh, turned around because uh, I don't remember why he turned around, but he was the one uh, reporting them missing because he lost contact with them. Right. And but if the the other four were skiing together, then they yeah they yeah. triggered together possibly. Yeah, it was um, used the. Uh, combination of statistics and uh, due diligence of findings in the snow and we are at the early point we have uh, also such a, a, a rescue man hanging from a helicopter with an avalanche beacon uh, mm. that could um, pick up the uh, avalanche signals from the beacons quite early in the snow but the problem was that uh, this were these markings were made with flags and the snow, and it started snowing again and pouring down one one and a half meter and new avalanches mm. on top of it. So we lost these signals, so yeah. and that was actually the start of this um, this uh, drone project that uh, we're about to finalize now with uh, a drone with the integrated uh, avalanche beacon and. Mm. Um, when we started uh, the idea, we reached out to a foundation in Norway and we asked for funding for this project for uh, for making this equipment because this is equipment that was not ready to buy from the shelf in in any stores. And we reached out to quite a lot of manufacturers and we found uh, a company in Stavanger called North Asset Solutions that uh, said, yeah. That's never been done. I think we can do it. Um, and they uh, used their network of uh, of different uh, drone manufacturers, and we uh, landed on a manufacturer from uh, Latvia called Atlas. That mm-hmm. um, we started the um, the job of of making this equipment, and we've had a lot of uh, issues and uh, yeah problems. Uh, during this uh, <laughs> this journey, because uh, the avalanche beacon is very sensitive to uh, electronic noise, mm. so uh, the noise from uh, the propeller engines, propeller, and uh, the noise from uh, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi from uh, the ground station to the drone was uh, interfering with uh, with the sensor. So they had to do a lot of. Uh, of job with uh, shielding from um, EMCs and yeah, I have a 15 page report from engineers with stuff I absolutely have no idea what means, but it looks quite cool. <laughs> it's, <laughs> a lo- the, the, it's a lot of graphs and stuff. That's the sort of the standard consultant <laughs> fare, that yeah. is, that kind of yeah, it, yeah. It, I did all these things that aren't I great? <laughs> well you said about the, the wi-fi interference that's that's really interesting i was I, it wasn't that long ago i was reading about a case in canada from a couple of years ago um 
and in there it referenced that um, it was a usual thing, a couple of skiers triggered an avalanche, a few other skiers on a slightly different route went to them to to um, probe and to uh, scan with the transceivers and try and dig them out. And one of the guys searching um, was getting interference and he couldn't work out why it was. And it was later he realized it was because his phone had been set to be a Wi-Fi hotspot. And yep. so his phone his phone was trying to was generating a Wi-Fi signal like a like a, a router, and that was that was interfering with his particular brand of uh, transceiver. So it's these things are sensitive. Yeah, the um, the avalanche beacons are very sensitive for uh, for radio noise, and uh, we use uh, Bidebox Pulse for our mm. handheld avalanche beacons, and. Uh, when we when we get this uh, and take them out of the box, you know this paper uh, that tells you how to use it and what to avoid. This <laughs> this paper we throw away in the garbage and never read because we're quite stupid men. Oh, the packaging with writing on it, you mean? Yeah, the packaging <laughs> with writing. If you actually read this, it says, don't have your cell phone on you when you're using this mm -hmm. device in search mode. Uh, in yeah. send mode, it's not a problem, but in search, you must have your phone switch off. So that means you can't be live streaming on Instagram whilst you're searching. Uh, not if you want a good result. <laughs> well, you might get some more followers or likes, you know. Yeah. Be uh, an influencer. Uh, it's not everything that you're supposed to say, but I'm Norwegian and I'm dumb, and that's quite a problem that we have with some of the accidents we have. Uh, we often find after the incident that um, it's been posted quite good pictures on Instagram or social media with, hmm. uh, look at this mountain I've been in, in this avalanche uh, risk. I'm one of the coolest guys. And then they get buried under tons of coastal snow and they're not so cool anymore. Well, maybe cold, maybe not cool. Yeah. Um, Someone's got to say the stupid things. But if I know. Go back to the drones. <laughs> well, I was going to say. So, the current iteration of the drone is it? Do you have one design that you have multiple drones of, or do you have different shapes and configurations for different purposes? Um, when we started the project, we had the idea that we want uh, we wanted a general purpose. We wanted one system we could use for everything, mm -hmm. um, and. We have so Atlas provided us with this uh, option that we have uh, optical cameras and we have thermal cameras and we have uh, uh, this uh, special sensor with uh, avalanche beacon that we can mm -hmm. attach and use. We had a, a few side effects of of this development and one of them was uh, this EMC shielding mm. that uh, led to that uh, these drones became one of the first drones with certification of anti-hacking. It's one of the drones that's most difficult for others to interfere with. So, um, and, and that's because of the Avalanche project. And since um, our supplier also supplies uh, drones for uh, police and military use, it's a good side effect. Yeah, as, as I say, I can't imagine <clears throat> there are too many people trying to hack a SAR drone in the middle of a rescue, but maybe the press, maybe... People with slightly disturbed minds, maybe? Yeah, and as I mentioned uh, 
early, we have some neighbors that do a lot of uh, crazy things. So uh, <laughs> everyone is uh, checking what we do because our proximity to different countries. Right. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe some interesting um, people with sort of bearskin hats and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, the... and the other side effect that we uh, found out during this uh, avalanche project is that uh, the avalanche beacon can actually be used to locating uh, a mobile telephone. If if um, the avalanche beacon is not turned on or for some reason is not working and the mobile phone still has power and is trying to send, the, um, the avalanche beacon can pick up these signals, but they pick them up as interference. So mm-hmm. we found this out by accident that, oh, we have a signal. No, we don't. Oh, we have a signal in the same spot. Oh, no, we don't. Oh, it's a cell phone. So it it was a mistaken accident that uh, is being uh, investigated uh, thoroughly. And uh, I've read some reports from Avalanche with handheld beacons that uh, it's been told that uh, they have had um, interference that they had, that they had suspected has been a mobile uh, cell phone or device of any sort. That's fascinating. So you managed to turn the interference and uh, around and make it into a a tool on its own. Uh, because w- one of the <laughs> one of the um, things we said to uh, to North Asset Solutions that we want to solve that when we fly into an avalanche, uh, mm. it's typical that we have uh, more than one casualty. So we mm. wanted to. Um, to ping out a signal that we have one beacon here and leave a, a mark on the map and and search for the for the next one because the idea with the drone is to pinpoint quite fast mm. where we have um, avalanche beacons and so we can send search and rescue people to exact points and and do work and uh, we use another drone system with uh, thermal cameras to check is it safe to go in the area. Uh, and monitoring the situation and so this this uh, engineers and this nerd uh, in Latvia with doing all the work they suddenly discovered that every beacon has a small line uh, of data information with a unique serial number of each avalanche beacon so so we get this up in that's a part of the information we store in uh, in our ground station. When we st- store a hotspot, we store this information. And mm. when we get these false signals, we we can check the log and we see, no, we don't have this serial number. This can be a, a mobile device of any sort. And then we can pinpoint this area for an area to go and check with a search probe to see if we find anything under the snow. Because I suppose that's the thing. It's, it's like, to my mind when you said if we can find one, maybe one victim and one signal, and then go off to find another. In my brain, my brain was immediately going to, well, what about that first person? But then a drone can only do so many things. It is not a rescue device. This is a search device. All it can do is say, "I think I found something. Here it is. I'm off to do something else." Yeah. It can't dig out. It can't treat anybody. It can't carry anyone out. Uh, I haven't seen uh, any drones for uh, 
for search and rescue that can do CPR. I haven't seen it yet. Maybe if you sort of ascended and descended very, very quickly, you could get the pressure just right on the sternum. Yeah. But that is, they are the search half of search and rescue, the rescue part. There's not a lot of drone work in there. I know DARPA have got that competition they do every year where they, uh, they're trying to find rescue drones that can open doors and and move objects for collapsed buildings and USAR and things like that. But for the mountains yet, there's not much, is there? No, it's not much. And um, one of the things that uh, I don't know the exact wording now, but uh, one of the the main things I say about drones in search and rescue is that it's the tool uh, on the side, mm. like a GPS or uh, or a, or a map or a compass or binoculars or a, a snowmobile. It's mm. a tool you use, but uh, if if the person using the tool is a tool, you don't get anything good out of it. <laughs> so uh, so in our in our organization, we um, we educate search and rescuers, and then mm. we um, turn them into drone operators. We don't mm. want drone operators that want to do search and rescue because they do shit job. They know nothing about uh, the field that we're uh, working in. Yeah. I, I know you've you've heard me question the use of drones in SAR before on other podcasts and other shows. The um, Sometimes the drone exists in the team just because they really wanted to have a drone, not because it is the right tool for that job. Yeah. Um for those of uh, your listeners that is uh, inside Discord <laughs> server, I'm one of the guys that they uh, used to uh, to tease you about drones. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, though. It seems to be that every opportunity, I don't know what it's like over there, but every opportunity that an organization that has put a lot of money into drones, anytime there is something, a positive result, it is the best thing ever. They will push that that out further into the media and to the public awareness than any other aspect of what the organization does. Yeah. Uh, we're actually, we just finished our annual report for um, the 2021 year. And mm. um, uh, we don't pump up our uh, call out number. <laughs> uh, Pre- previous, previous show topic there. Previous show topic. But um, we had 23 call outs uh, last year. Uh, which of uh, five of them we used drones in, and three of them was we were called out just because of the drones. But then we were called out to help teams quite mm. far away. We had call outs two hundred kilometers out, or one hundred and sixty kilometer north of us to to help other teams. Is is it hard not to feel like they don't love you? They only love your drone. Uh, it's actually not a problem because. Um, we uh, we don't want to empty our region of search operators, so mm. it's no problem to um, to move out the drone with uh, with a drone pilot and an operator. But we don't want to move out all the team, because if no. anything happens inside our regions, then half of the uh, half of the team is gone, or uh, maybe all of all all of our team is gone, and it's only. Yeah, the other organization uh, left of handling a big situation. So we don't want to empty our region, but uh, it's no. not a problem providing with help, but we don't want to, um, we want to keep a 
capability inside our region. And I've got a few more questions to drill down into that topic on its own, but maybe we should tidy up the, and finish off the drone thing. So yeah. in terms of weather conditions and wind speed and rain and that snow and that kind of thing, what what are the limits of flying for the drones that you have at the moment? Um, the Atlas drone, we can fly it down to minus 20 and... Uh, we can have a takeoff into a maximum of 15 meter per second wind. And yeah, for, for range, we can reach up to 15.4 kilometers from where the pilot is standing. But uh, provided that we use mesh technology, then we need an Atlas relay or an extra Atlas drone to, to relay the signal. Uh, yeah, because suppose you can't go from one valley over and down into another. You need line of sight still. Yeah, we need a radio line of sight, but um, yeah. if since we have uh, the mesh opportunity, I can uh, fly one drone up to the top of the mountain, and I can fly the other drone down the valley using the first drone as a radio link. What? <laughs> so the, the the drone will act as its own relay for its friend. Yeah, and that's I can, amazing. And I can fly uh, two, three, four drones on one ground station. <sighs> so. It's cool equipment. And yeah, my DJ, my DJI Mavic doesn't do that. Yeah, um, <laughs> th that's one of the things I like about um, using uh, this kind of drone and and having suppliers like uh, the ones we have in Savangen. When we say uh, we want this feature, can you do this? Mm, it's not available, but we can fix it. And two, three, four months later, ta-da, we have it. That's the best Christmas wish list ever. I mean, uh, you are near the north. You're nearer the North Pole, so maybe. Yeah, we need we, we need the North Pole, and I need to mention that uh, beside the Atlas, I also have a DJI Matrice three hundred, mm -hmm. and um, the Atlas Pro is cheaper to buy than the DJI Matrice. <laughs> but not um, but not with the Avalanche sensor, but uh, with with other sensors, it's cheaper to buy the Atlas than the the uh, Matrice drone, at least in Norway. I'm, I feel like I'm doing everything out of order, but I had a list of questions as you were talking there. So the, the avalanche sensor, how sensitive, how powerful is that compared to, say, my little handheld Autovox that I have for winter mountaineering? For now, uh, uh, the drone has the same limitation because okay. um, what we've done, we've used uh, the, the radio... Um, the radio antenna from a handheld beacon and mm. turned it into a drone because first we wanted the avalanche beacon to be operative, but we have stated that uh, we want range to be increased in the future. Mm. I have a volunteer colleague uh, in the south of Norway that's uh, specializing in building uh, radio antennas. So he said that he can help us with uh, finding the correct mouth of how the antenna should be provided to increase the the uh, distancing from 35 meters to 50 or maybe 100 meters. Because a handheld beacon, it can search 35 meters in mm. in uh, in a half moon. Uh, yeah, 35 to the left, front and right. Yeah. So, so it's basically radio technology and, and uh, radio theory. So this is, it's not as powerful as the sort of thing you would have on um, a Bristow's 
Sikorsky search and rescue helicopter, but you can get a hell of a lot closer to the terrain. Yeah, like I say to uh, to my guys in my team that uh, when I'm flying the drone, we always use the helmet, uh, the people on ground, because there's always a risk that things can fall down. But <laughs> but but nevertheless, <laughs> being hit in the head by a drone weighing 1.5 kilo is less painful than having a S92 in your head. This is true, and the, the, the insurance is cheaper. Yeah, it's quite expensive. Uh, um, but this is because of a few mishaps that the drone insurance is quite expensive. Still cheaper than an S92. <laughs> I, I'm guessing that. In I've heard um, the Sea King in Norway, it cost approximately seven and 8,000 euro per hour it's in use when it's deployed. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah, and now when we get the, the Star Queen, that's the AV-101, mm. uh, the pricing is expected to rise to 11,000, 12,000 euro per hour. This is a question going right back to the very beginning. Is SAR, is there any um, charge for SAR there? No. Um, search and rescue in Norway is... Uh, is absolutely free. There is one exception. I'm going to come back to it. But uh, on the mainland in Norway, no matter what you do, how you do it, uh, if you do it legal or by illegal activity, if you get hurt and you need help, uh, getting help is free. The, the police might come and visit you in the hospital afterwards, though. Uh, they could be, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, the healthcare can't release information to the police, so you should be quite un unlucky to get caught. I will make a note of that for future <laughs> illegal activity. For future reference. Uh, well, uh, it, it, in Minecraft, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but in Svalbard, uh, it's Norwegian territorial, but uh, it's the island that's 78 degrees north. Um mm. There are some different regulations there. So if you do something really, 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 really stupid, uh, you first have to pay for um, for the cost of being uh, rescued, and then you get the free ticket back to the mainland. Hmm. <laughs> but then you have to do a major f**k-up. <laughs> I'm sure I could have quite a good go. You know, I've made some fairly big mistakes in my life. I've made some fairly big mistakes this year already, so... <laughs> I'm sure we could try something. Okay, so <clears throat> I had a question from earlier. I'm looking at my producer now. She's giving me a blank look. Um, it was oh, it, so travel time. This this thing about you, the size of the area. Do you know how many kilometers your area covers, or sort of how how long will it take you to tra travel to the four corners of your area or the furthest extremes? Um to the corners of our area. If we go to um, to the west, we have uh, 75 kilometers of driving, uh, approximately one hour. And if we keep driving, driving, then we will get wet on our feet, and at some point we will end up in Newfoundland, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to look across. Maybe Greenland, maybe? Yeah, maybe Greenland. But if we do in a little bit left turn, I think we will miss uh, Greenland. Yeah, it seems like a good idea. Uh, and but... if 
if we uh, drive south, uh, we have approximately 70 kilometers until the next uh, team in uh, Red Cross. So uh, it's usual that we drive further to cooperate with them. But uh, mm-hmm. when we get into their area, it's normal that they get the assignment first and then we go out to help them. Like they come to help us in our region when when we have a, a big uh, happening. But we get the call out first and then we start hand- uh, getting help from our providers. But to the east, it's quite different. And we have approximately 140 kilometers of driving uh, road. And after that, we have, uh, if we can use the all-terrain vehicle, maybe one and a half, two hour of driving to the typical sites where uh, tourists are getting stranded, hurt, injured. And if we have to walk, we uh, eight, nine, ten, eleven hours of walk one way. <laughs> so, but that's the national park, and then we're going, getting closing, close to uh, Sweden and Finland, and to the north, it's yeah, I would say to the north we have seventy kilometers to the crossing point between us and Tromsø. We have uh, active teams in Tromsø of Norwegian people, say the Red Cross. But if we go northwest, we have 200 kilometers until we have the next um, the next search and rescue team. So we have some distances. So hmm. it's not unusual that we have one and a half hour of driving uh, to to get to our callouts. That's a big area. That's it's a strange thing because you have excellent roads, you have great communication and you have all these communities up there um i had some friends suggest questions about what i should ask you and those questions were all based on their experiences from alaska and places like that where the infrastructure is very very different here it's it's like you have a normal northern european country but you've spread everything out so if it's not on a road it doesn't exist looking at it on the map um if it's not on a road it's wilderness but then there are roads spreading out like a spider's web across the whole region yeah and um, in our region it's worth to um to acknowledge that uh, it's fairly big uh, military activity and uh, that's why we have uh, a quite a lot of roads and crossroads so mm-hmm. we have uh, two various uh, small villages we have uh, two or three or maybe four roads leading to them and it's uh, a military tactic that if one road gets closed or taken by the enemy we should have another road to to get into this point because mm. it's strategic important that makes sense so my last few questions are can i come and visit you of course you can i'm looking forward to that can i sleep in your spare room uh I have to think about that because uh, you're a beaded man and uh, I don't like beaded men. <laughs> That's just prejudice. Uh, I, I would shave I would shave to come and visit you. Uh, um. <laughs> the typical part of uh, the northern part of Norway is that the hospitality is quite great. So of course we can find a place for you to uh, sleep. We we are not having guests that being that going to sleep in a hotel that's just rude 
Okay. So am I coming in the summer or the winter? Uh, it depends on what experience you want. If you want uh, the cozy uh, experience with the good views and temperatures, uh, yeah, 15, 16 degrees Celsius, absolutely come in the summertime. But if mm. you want to see the raw nature and get the Arctic, the sense of the Arctic wilderness, uh, then the winter is the correct time to come. I, I, I quite like minus 20 and zero visibility. So Yeah, then the winter time is the correct time to come. Okay, so next November I will be there. Yeah, we'll make that work. We'll make that work. That might be the next time Ralph is featured on the show is as I fly into, I think you said to Badafoss? Yeah, Badafoss uh, is the closest airport. Which is a, is that an American installation or do they have? Uh, it's uh, it's a NATO Air, air Force actually. So uh, it's one of the longest runways in Norway. Um, it's um a baseline for f16 f22 i i haven't heard that uh this uh b2 has landed there but uh, i think it was the emergency landing site for that one maybe in case it was you know returning from somewhere further to the east yeah one of these countries i don't remember the name of it yeah begins with r and ends in usher Something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we can come and visit. We're coming in the winter and we're flying into the military airbase. Okay, so is there a common thing that people get wrong? That people who are visitors to the area, tourists or people who are not from the area, what is the thing that they get wrong or that they don't understand about that place? Almost everyone that comes here expects to uh, see polar bears. And uh, everyone is so disappointed when they realize that if they are going to see polar bears, they have to go to Svalbard, another 2,000 kilometers to the north. And it's over the sea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and is, is there anything that you have learned from living and working there in the location that you do that maybe gives you a skill set that most other people don't have or something you could apply elsewhere? Um, I would absolutely have to say that um, uh, surviving in extreme environments, that's the normal for us. Uh, because we're quite used to the cold with 20, 25, 30 degrees below and the wind gusts to 30, 40 meters per second. That, that's the normal for us. We, we understand when we have to, uh, when it's smart to go inside and and when it's okay to still be outside. And uh, summertime with sudden rains of 50, 60 millimeters in two, three hours, that's normal. We just understand that, okay, now it will be muddy and slidey. We have to be a little bit more careful. So we have a skill set of um, surviving in extreme environments that's normal. And I think we take for granted uh, the the nature and the view and the wilderness area we live in because it's normal for us. We don't find it exotic. Uh, I don't find uh, looking at the uh, aurora being uh, especially exotic because we have it every day all winter long. But uh, when we have tourists that uh, 
suddenly stops in the middle of the road going out to the car and just being, whoa, and I'm looking at them. What are you stupid guys doing now? Yeah. Get that, out that of the way. I, <laughs> that was me when I, the first time I saw them. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, it freaked me out that there could be something what that seemed to be so huge in there in the sky and completely silent. Yeah. No noise. It feels like it feels like anything that big should have a noise with it, and it was just there, silent. And I was on my own in the middle of this frozen lake when I saw it for the first time, and I just thought, "Have I died? Is this not? Am I meant to be seeing this? Is that there's no one around to ask? You know." Yeah, you mentioned you were in uh, Finster, and uh, this is uh, <laughs> the flat lowlands of the south. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It's. Looking at looking at the map, I was amazed how far south it was compared to where you are. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit dry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's prat- it's practically the tropics compared to you. I think it's fourteen hundred kilometers to uh, Finster from us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you for coming onto the show, and thank you for sharing your world with us. Um, there will almost certainly be a follow-up to this and we want to hear more about the next phase of the drone project um and see how things go is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with maybe something in norwegian maybe something in english yeah maybe we can uh do both of things uh, okay one of the things i can leave uh with is uh, that we're actually starting a new drone project uh in uh in the first half of this year, where we are starting to use uh, a RF sniffer or a, a life seeker, it's called. We we can pinpoint mobile cellular devices in areas, and we can also use this uh, device with uh, to providing um, text messages to people when uh, ecoms are out for some reason, uh, cell mm-hmm. towers are down, and so on. Uh, and this will be put on an uh, English drone uh, from Evolved Dynamics, the Sky Mantis drone. Uh, this is uh, probably the most weather robust system I've seen for such a rescue. Uh, and uh, I'm quite sure that the design is uh, based on Big Hero 6 because the drone looks like Big Hero 6. <laughs> the big, white, and round. Big, white, and round. <laughs> <laughs> um, ah. and uh, for uh, our for, for the Norwegian listeners I uh, can say uh, I hope uh, we meet us på uh, Forfkonferansen til høsten på Oslo Gardermoen Hotel vi ses I got Oslo from that yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I invited them to uh, come to um, the the joint uh, volunteer rescue organization meeting in Oslo. Well, well, I won't. I won't be there, but I hope some other people are. Me too. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for uh, having me. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you've made it this far into the episode, then you might want to carry on the conversation with our online community over on our dedicated Discord server. If you've never used it before, Discord is a bit like an internet forum. 
it's free, you don't need to give up your real name or your location, and there's a community of over 200 Sarfolk on there right now. You can ask questions, post photos, and converse with people working in SAR all around the world. We have a Patreon page which supports the running costs of this show, and you can find all of that by going to sarcast.co.uk. And there you will also find show notes and links to all of our previous episodes. If you're on social media, then you can find us under at sarcastuk. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Sarcast is produced and edited by Amy Green and is an original outdoor media production.